news guy saying, as you're arguing with a coworker over their political theory, as you're getting frustrated and you're losing hope in what's happening in our world and you're thinking this place is just falling apart, I'm, I'm wondering what generation didn't say that, by the way. But as you say that, and as you experience the frustrations that come, maybe you should rehearse these attributes of God to remind yourself, no, I should have absolute confidence that there is a God who is governing everything that is happening and the end of how every single detail he has already predicted and determined. Settle down. Settle down. Be confident. So let's look at seven different attributes of God from the book of Revelation, these few verses that we'll look at, verses four to eight, that give us confidence in God to govern all things in order to guarantee the end. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Seven different attributes that give us confidence in God to govern all things as he guarantees the end. The first one, God speaks to the church. We need to hear this. God speaks to his church. He has not left us alone. He's actually speaking to us in this book. This is what we have to keep in mind as we study through the book of Revelation. He's not just working out the future. He's telling us as his people what to do now with what he's telling us about the future. You see it in the opening phrase in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. John, the apostle, is the human scribe who physically pens the contents of the book. We looked last week at verse 19. He was told to write down what he has seen, the things which are, the things that will take place after these things. That's what verse 19 says the content of the book is, what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. He's to write down everything that he is seeing in this. Verse 11 reminds us, Write in a book what you see. That's what John is going to record, what he sees. Now, primarily, what he sees takes place in chapters 4 through 22. The verb to see is used around 62 times, and most of it is found after chapter 4. This is what he sees. It's the vision that he sees when he's caught away into the heavens. In chapters two and three, he's writing down what the Spirit is actually saying to the churches. What he sees is about the future. What is being said by the Spirit is being said by the Spirit now to the churches. So here's John writing all of it. What we need to hear now and what is going to happen in the future, all of this is for us to hear he writes to the seven churches. They're in, mentioned to us in verse 11, specifically Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven different churches. Specific churches active in the first century. Why? 
Why these seven churches? Well, from a human standpoint, these are likely the seven churches or at least churches that John had a lot of familiarity with. We, we hear from church history that John actually spent his final days in the city of Ephesus, which was the, the key influential city in Western Turkey, what is modern Western Turkey, what is Asia Minor in the first century. Even today you can go there and supposedly you'll find his grave. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but there is a plaque there that says John's underneath here. We stood there not too many years ago and wondered, uh, maybe, but he did serve in Ephesus. So these churches are likely churches he knew well. So from a human standpoint, you could see why he would pick these churches. But the reality is he didn't pick them. There's a divine standard here. From the divine standpoint, John doesn't choose the seven churches. God does. God says to write these messages to these churches. Yes, John had access to them. He knew them. But God said, these are the seven churches that I want you to write to. And when you read the letters, as we will, and you study them, what is said to every single one of these churches? He who has an ear. So any individual who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to what? To who? To the churches, to all of them. Not just to one of them, but if you have an ear and you can hear, meaning you are a Christian and you have spiritual ears to hear, then listen to what the Spirit is saying to all of the churches because all of the churches and the messages given to them apply to us. Why seven? Well, seven... <clears throat> Likely because it's a very significant term, very significant number in the scripture, isn't it? Where does it first, where do we first find it? Genesis, Genesis chapter two, verse one, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And then listen, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. Seventh was the number that represented the finished, complete totality of the work of God. It represents something in completion and perfection. In fact, we're still waiting for heaven to come back to earth so that we can live in a seventh day kind of life. That's what he's going to restore. So the number seven, often throughout the scripture, refers to something complete and perfect, comprehensive. It's a very prominent number in the book of Revelation. We'll find seven churches, seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels with seven trumpets, seven peals of thunder, 7,000 people, seven heads of the dragon, seven mountains, seven diadems, seven angels with seven plagues. Seven's pretty important, isn't it? There are other numbers, 24, 12, we'll see some of those. But seven is this number that from the beginning of the scripture is meant to show us something complete and final, which means if he's writing to the seven churches, He's not just writing to seven historical churches. If the Spirit is telling us all to listen to those messages, these seven churches and what's going on in them, whether negative 
or positive is a comprehensive approach to what is happening within the churches during this church age. And how should we hear the Spirit speaking to us in these messages to the churches? So what we will learn in these messages to the churches are what we need to hear specifically in light of what's going to be revealed about the end. John begins, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. Sounds like a normal letter, doesn't it? At least if Paul was writing it. This is not how John normally opens a letter, but it is the way letters have been written Grace and peace, the undeserved favor of God to you, the tranquility of circumstance and life and spirit that comes as a result of God's favor, his grace. But just as the Apostle Paul opens his letters this way many times, how does he close them also? Not only is it grace to you at the beginning, what is it at the end? Grace be with you. It's almost as if the grace that's coming to you is the content of the letter. And he prays at the end, may that grace then reside with you. John does the exact same thing here. Grace to you in the beginning, and you get to Revelation 22, 21, and his grace be with you. Praying that that favor of God shown to you and what he's revealed in the Revelation actually enables you to live in it now. May God's grace help you to live in the content of this. What does this mean? God is speaking to his church. Do you read the book of Revelation as if he's giving us what we need to know? You say, well, why do I have to know all of these details about the future? Especially if we would not be there or go through some of what he's describing here. Well, you know this. If you know the future... It certainly helps you to interpret what you're going through in the present, doesn't it? Or not to misinterpret what you're going through in the present. There's too many people who preach and teach and look at and read the book of Revelation who are trying to find everything in your newspaper in this book. Oh, this must be that. I mean, current events notwithstanding. Something happens in Israel and Christians just blow up. Well, where is this in the book of Revelation? Are you ready? I'm going to tell you where it is in the book of Revelation. I have no idea. I have no idea. In fact, some some are saying this is the unfolding of prophetic events. Listen, in my understanding of Israel, and I do believe God will save Israel in the end, I do believe the nation will be restored. But if Israel was wiped off the face of the earth today, It does nothing to what God has said. Nothing. The modern state of Israel is not required for God to fulfill his prophetic promises. Matter of fact, they didn't exist for most of church history as a nation. So don't get upset by all of this. If he's speaking to us, he's speaking to us and showing you the future so that you will persevere and overcome and live faithfully in the present because you know what's coming. People who know the future are stable and steadfast. That's why he's speaking to us now about these things. Let me give you a second attribute 
of God that gives us confidence in him to govern everything and guarantee the end. Secondly, God is eternal. God is eternal. John writes to the seven churches, grace to you and peace from who? From him who is and was and who is to come. This speaks to the eternal nature of God from him who is the one who is always existing in the present, from him who was, who's always existing in the past, from him who is to come. He is the one through whom you, you don't see him now. He is about to invade human history in a way you will see him face to face. He is the God who existed before history began. He is the God who has existed in past history. He is the God of our present experience. He is the God who will invade our world in the future. He transcends history and he is intimately involved in it all at the same time. Now what's interesting about this phrase as it's written here in the Greek language is that it is as Tom Schreiner, New Testament scholar says, it is ungrammatical. That's a new word for me ungrammatical. It means that the way he phrases this does not fit with normal Greek construction, which means he's not just writing this to write it. He's referring to something likely that precedes it, something specific. And what would that be? Can you think back in biblical history to any statement from God himself about himself that would sound similar to this, that he is the one who was and is and is to come? Well, you should, especially if you've been with us in the summer months, we've been studying the book of Exodus. Do you remember Exodus chapter three? When Moses is in front of the bush that's burning, yet not consumed, and he's having a conversation with God, and God says, here's my name. Do you remember his name? Exodus three fourteen. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. I am Yahweh in Hebrew. Yahweh. It's a playoff of the verb to be meaning he exists. This is likely what John is referring to. And this is full of amazing meaning. Think about this. He is Yahweh, the God who is, and he made promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews said about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises God made to them? They all died and none of them experienced the fulfillment of those promises. Isn't that great? No? What do you mean they didn't experience it? The God who is made promises to them and they died and they never saw their fulfillment. What does that mean? They died waiting for the God who transcends time. And the book of Hebrews is very clear. They were waiting for the messianic resurrection when they would actually live with God in the promised land. That's why they all wanted to go back to the promised land and be buried because where would they be raised? In that land. And who made the promise? The self-existent eternal God who was and is and is to come. This is what John is referring to. 
It's not the last time that we'll see this description of the Father, and likely this is a reference to God the Father because we see the Spirit mentioned next and the Son after that, so this is likely a reference to the Father. But we'll also see this phrase from him who was, is, and was, and is to come. It'll be repeated again in verse 8. It'll be repeated by the four living creatures in chapter 4, verse 8, and by the 24 elders in chapter 11, verse 17, and by a great angel in chapter 16, verse 5. This is who God is. He is eternal. Now think about that. Can you trust an eternal being with what he says about the future? This is why he's rehearsing the attributes of God. He's speaking to you and he transcends time and he invades history all of the time. He's eternal. An eternal God knows what the future holds, doesn't he? There's a third attribute that gives us confidence in God to govern everything and guarantee the end. God is all-knowing. He's all-knowing. You were waiting for us to describe this, I'm sure. Him who is and was and is to come, that's discernible. But what about this one? From the seven spirits who are before the throne. Your Trinitarian ears pop up, don't they, when they hear this? The seven spirits, this sounds like some false teacher. What do we mean by the seven spirits? Is that a theologically imprecise way to talk about the Holy Spirit? Because it's phrased this way, some interpreters say this isn't talking about the Spirit at all. It's talking about seven different angels, seven different archangels that rabbis who wrote in between the Old and New Testament spoke of and actually named, and they said that that's these seven angels here. That's the seven spirits. The problem is, is that the word spirits is never used in the book of Revelation to describe an angel. And if John wants to mention an angel, he's going to tell you it's an angel. He does 64 times in this book. So some say, well, maybe it's just a reference to the book of Isaiah, where there is in Isaiah 7, verses 2 to 3, a sevenfold characteristic of the nature of the Spirit. Well, that's very possible that there's an allusion to Isaiah here. But it's one spirit who possesses these qualities. This here is described as the seven spirits. Now, most likely, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. By the way, the word Holy Spirit, the phrase Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, is never found in the book of Revelation. He's not referred to as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God anywhere in the book of Revelation. But we will see these seven spirits several times. We'll see it in chapter 3, verse 1. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In chapter 4, verse 5, there are the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, chapter 5, verse 6. Why seven? Well, we already said, didn't we? It's the number of perfection and completion It reveals something about the spirit that is total and comprehensive. But why say seven spirits? Well, this likely is a reference to another place in the Bible. Let me show it to you. Take your Bible and turn back into the Old Testament to the second to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. 
So if you find Matthew, first book of the New Testament, just hang a left, two books, all right? Zechariah. And make your way to Zechariah chapter four. I know every time we look at a minor prophet, you get nervous. Probably gonna have to go back to the table of contents to find it. Not this one, it's easy. Zechariah chapter four. <laughs> look at verse one and just follow with me through a, a few verses that I wanna read here. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Now this will become significant for us later in the book of Revelation when we talk about the olive trees. But then I said to the angel who was speaking with me saying, what are these my Lord? So the angel was, who was speaking me, with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with the shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are what? The eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Zerubbabel, by the way, was responsible for rebuilding the temple after the captivity had ended and Israel began to reassemble back into the promised land after the Babylonian captivity, captivity, Zerubbabel was involved in the rebuilding of the temple. This prophecy is a prophecy about the rebuilding of the temple, but not just Zerubbabel's temple. The temple that Zerubbabel was going to rebuild was just something that would point to a greater temple that would actually house the spirit of God. And in fact, the candlestick inside the holy place of the temple that had seven sprouts from it represented the spirit of God who, as is said right here, is the seven eyes of the Lord, meaning the comprehensive knowledge of God of all things of all time in his presence. And what Zerubbabel is told here is that a future temple is coming where the spirit will actually dwell throughout the earth and see and know all things. This is the seven spirits of God. It's not seven different personalities, seven different spirits that come from God, but the complete knowledge of God, his eyes that run over all the earth. Think about that. If you had someone eternal who knows everything because he's everywhere at all times, could you trust what he says about the future? This is why John refers to the seven spirits. So look at another attribute, a fourth attribute of God that gives us confidence in him to govern everything and guarantee the end. 
Number four, God is king. God is king. Notice the book is from the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. It is from the spirit of God who knows all things. And also verse five, and it is from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's not a title used very often in the book of Revelation. Three times only will you find that title, Jesus Christ. But in the introduction to the book, it's very consequential. It's a reference both to his name of incarnation, Jesus, and his name of Davidic promise, messianic promise, Christ. Christ is the Greek term Christos, refers to the anointed one of the Old Testament who is the Messiah. So this comes from Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? Notice he is the faithful witness. What does that mean? Well, we already know. It's said in chapter 1, verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his bondservants. And notice verse 2, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony that comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the faithful testifier. He witnesses to the truth. We'll see it again in Revelation 3.14. Jesus will be referred to as the faithful and true witness. He is a true, authentic eyewitness to what God reveals. He is also a witness to God's faithfulness. And I want you to keep that in mind. We'll see it more in a moment. He's not only the faithful witness. Who else is Jesus referred to here as? The conqueror of death. He's the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn of the dead. That doesn't mean he's the first one to ever be resurrected from the dead, but he is the preeminent one among all those who will be resurrected from the dead. He's certainly the first one who was resurrected into an eternal glorified state from the dead. But now he holds the position of the preeminent one. We know the Bible speaks many times of the firstborn son And it's common in the Old Testament to read about the firstborn son who loses his firstborn status, like Ishmael and Esau, who both were born first, but weren't firstborn sons in the end, right? Firstborn is a title of preeminence and prominence. Now, Jesus is the firstborn over all the dead. Means he was resurrected, and he is the first among all those who are resurrected, Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who abolished death through his resurrection, the consequences of death through his own resurrection. Notice also he's the ruler of the nations. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a repeated phrase in the book of Revelation, by the way. The kings of the earth. Found in chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 6, verse 15, 17.2, 17.18, 18.3, 18.9, 19.9, 19, 18, 18.3, 18.9, 19.19, and 21.24. That's a lot of times you're going to find reference to the kings of the earth. They're the kings of the earth, and normally in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth are opposing God. They're opposing Christ. They're opposing his people. And who is Jesus? The ruler of them all. In fact, we'll see by the end of the book, In chapter 21, the kings of the earth will actually turn and bring their glory into the kingdom of which Christ rules. But what I want you to see about these three terms, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, 
is that these three terms actually refer to something else in the Old Testament as well. Turn back in your Bible to the book of Psalms just for a moment. Psalm 89. Psalm 89. This Psalm, Psalm 89, is basically an inspired commentary on the promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God told David that there would be a king that would come from his line that would rule on the throne forever. Psalm 89 is a commentary on that. Look at verse 1. And as we read it, I want you to notice how many times you see the phrase loving kindness or faithful because this refers to God's faithful, unending, covenant kind of love. Watch this. Verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. That's obviously the reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the covenant God made with David. What will this chosen one, this comes from the seed of David, be like? Look at verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones, and I said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. And watch this. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and my name, and in my name, his horn or his authority, his kingship, will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. That's what the Messiah is going to say. Notice verse 27 specifically. I also shall make him my what? Firstborn. What else? What's the next phrase? The highest of the kings of the earth. Verse 28, my loving kindness, I will keep him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever. His throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. Over and over, this psalm refers to these three attributes of the son, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, meaning What John is referring to in Revelation 1 is not just different attributes of Jesus Christ. He's saying to us, this is the promised Messiah. This is the one that was predicted all the way back in the early portions of the Bible, reiterated throughout the prophets, 
described in the Gospels, this book of the Revelation comes from the promised messianic king. The eternal God, the all-knowing God, the God who is the ultimate promised king over all the earth is the one writing the book of Revelation. Do you trust it? Let's look at a fifth attribute of God. Again, it should give us confidence and confidence about how he will guarantee the end. Number five, God is savior. God is savior. At the end of verse five, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. It's a beautiful, beautiful description, isn't it? It's almost as if John has been rehearsing these truths about who God is and he just all of the sudden breaks into immediate praise as he writes this doxological statement. It's a further rehearsal of the attributes that should give us confidence in God, not just in how all things are going to end, but think about who this God is toward you right now. Who is he? He is the one who loves us. He loves us. Notice, it does not say the one who loved. It's a present tense verb. He is constantly loving us. Love from the Father always has eternity past in mind. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would hold, be holy and blameless before him in love. Ephesians, Ephesians 1.4. He loved us when he gave himself for us. Isn't that right? Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's always loving us now even when he disciplines us. Hebrews 12, 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he gives us a love that never ends. It's eternal. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort. His love is comprehensive. Have you ever thought about that? God can never love you more than he has. He can never love you less. His love is absolutely perfect, eternal. You say, yeah, that's not the problem. I'm the one that messes up. So that has to affect his love. Well, then you don't really know the love of God, right? First John 4, 10, and this is love. Not that we loved God how many times you need to rehearse that to yourself in this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins he loves us and it never ends he forgives us also 
Look at the phrase, he released us from our sins by his blood. This does have a finality to it. This is in the aorist tense, it's completed action. It's not the ongoing action of his love, it's finished. He released us, it's the language of slavery as if we were bound and enslaved to sin. And not just enslaved to sin as a principle, but enslaved to sin and its consequence. He took us out of the final consequence of sin, which is ultimate and eternal death. He's released us. Do you understand that? Sin has no ultimate authority over his people because of his love. You may struggle with sin. It does not rule you if you are in Christ. He has released you. It's also the language of sacrifice. How did he release you? By his what? His blood, his life. Human life was required to release us from the consequence of sin. It's a beautiful thought. He loves us, he forgives us. I want you to notice verse six, he completes us. Another element of the son, he completes us. What do I mean by that? Look at verse six very carefully. And he made us to be a kingdom, priests, to our God and Father. Why would I say that he completes us? If you think back again to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says that humanity was created how? In the image of God. What was the purpose of humanity? To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to rule it, to have dominion over it. As image bearers of God, we would rule over the earth as if it was the kingdom of God given to us to rule. To show the image of God, we actually displayed that by ruling over the earth. He made us to be a kingdom and priests. Sin messed that up, didn't it? Genesis 3, humanity was removed from the garden, which meant they no longer had direct access of fellowship to God. The image of God was not taken away, but it was certainly curtailed. It was marred. Fellowship now required an intermediary, a priest to stand in between, a sacrifice to bring people to God. And do you remember in the curse, Adam was told, you're gonna fight with the earth. It's going to fight back. You're going to try to have dominion over it, but it will fight back. You will not be able to have complete dominion over the earth. Though that was our original purpose as humanity. When God formed Israel, he formed the nation of Israel so that they would do what Adam and Eve did not do. Represent God to the nations. Show the nations who God was, what the image of God looked like what the rule of God in their kingdom of Israel looked like. They failed. They failed in that. They rebelled against God. And yet, God said in Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me, Israel, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Today, the church, where Israel has failed, the church in the present role, its present circumstances, it demonstrates the original design that we were created to have. First Peter 2.9, Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, 
What does that mean? We are a kingdom of priests. So think about this. The fall removed us from intimacy with God. We we were required to have a priest. Now in Christ, who is our high priest, we are all made priests to God, are we not? So we now have direct access. The veil of the temple has been torn in two. We have access to God. You say, but what about this kingdom? Are we supposed to take over the world? No, the kingdom of God is being seen today through how we live as a local church. Do you ever think about that? We're, we're like an embassy of the total kingdom of God and how we conduct ourselves and what we experience in the spiritual benefits that we have in Christ. We're showing the world what the kingdom of God looks like. At least that's what we should be doing. But Jesus, when he returns, he will actually make us into that kingdom that is global of priests who have constant access to him for the rest of eternity. In fact, we read about it in in chapter 19 and chapter 20. When the Lord returns, he establishes his rule on the earth over all the nations of the earth and we reign with him. And that reign will continue into eternity. We're experiencing a taste now of what we will one day enjoy in fullness in eternity. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to our God. Notice also, he humbles us. Look at the end of verse six. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Friends, you're going to see that, that kind of doxology over and over and over through the book of Revelation. It's as if worship just jumps out all over the place from every page. Revelation 4.9, the living creatures will give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory, power, riches, wisdom, might, and honor and blessing. Revelation 7.12, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. Revelation 19.1, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. John, after he rehearses who Christ is, when he rehearses what he has done, the great salvation he has given to us in all its multifaceted purposes, he erupts in praise. I would say this is a statement of confidence, wouldn't you? To him belongs all the glory. Not me. I seek it. And it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. And he is the one who is speaking to us. He is eternal. He is all-knowing. He is the king of the earth. He is the savior. To him belongs all the glory. 
Can you trust this book? Think about who it's coming from. Let me give you a sixth attribute. We'll finish quickly with this in the last. Number six, God is coming. You see it in verse seven. He is coming with the clouds. In fact, this is a reference to Daniel chapter seven. You can jot that down and look at it later. And John will do what he does so many times, 26 times in this book, he's gonna say, behold. It's if he's, he's seeing a vision, he's like, what? Wow. What is just, what did I just see here? Behold, I saw. It should grasp your attention. Behold, he is coming. Who's coming? The eternal, all-knowing, king of the earth, the savior of mankind is coming. He is coming. Not just that he's going to appear in the clouds, but with the clouds, he's coming back to the earth. This means he's coming from heaven. Just a, a note to come with the clouds is clouds are usually a sign that he's coming from heaven. Clouds are associated with heaven and you'll see them throughout this book. It's usually connected with heaven and he's coming in judgment. Not just from heaven, but in judgment. Notice, every eye will see him. You're like, well, how's that gonna happen? You start trying to find some human way. Oh, I can think of how that's gonna happen. Technology, this or that. I wouldn't try to figure that out. You know how people have, have tried to figure out what little technological gadget exists today that's gonna fulfill the book of Revelation. It's fun to go get those books and read them 30 years later, isn't it? Yeah, don't try to figure that out. Every eye will see him, which means it's supernatural. It's something God will do in which every eye will see. Well, I'm sure it has something to do with the internet. Maybe. Satellite TV, who knows? Does it matter? Every eye will see him. And what will they do? Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Who are those who pierced him? Well, obviously it's the Jewish people. This is a reference to, it's not a direct quotation from, but it is a reference to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, where it describes the nation of Israel seeing the one they have pierced. Now, what's interesting is that John in his gospel actually refers to this quote from Zechariah and he applies it to the ones who pierced Jesus on the cross. And just before he quotes this, he mentions a Roman soldier who pierced him. A Roman soldier who is not Israel, even though the Jews are being responsible for piercing the side of Christ. What does this refer to? Not just the Jewish people, to everyone. To everyone who is responsible for the death of the Lord. And not just those in the first century, because this is referring to something that happens when he comes. It will include Israel as a nation. It will include all the nations of the earth. In addition to Israel, they will see him whom they have pierced and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. The tribes of the earth, <clears throat> actually a phrase that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, 
chapter 10, verse 32, that describes all the families of the earth. The families is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as tribes. It's all the people of the earth, all the nations of the earth. They will see him and they will mourn. You say, well, is this a mourning under repentance? Not at first. Now, I do think the Bible is clear in Zechariah 12, Revelation 11, Israel will repent at the coming of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the book of Joel does bring wrath, but it also brings salvation. That's very clear. So there will be mourning because judgment will come and then there will be repentance. In fact, we also see that the nations of the earth oppose God over and over. The tribes of the earth oppose him and yet by the end of the book of Revelation, they serve him. Judgment is coming and it will yield eternal punishment for some and some will repent. He said, do you believe that people will repent during the time of God's judgment and wrath? Well, I think the Bible indicates that by the conclusion of his wrath, there are some who will have repented. I don't think it will be many, but I do think some will come. They're going to see him. Are you sure? We'll look at the last phrase of verse seven. So it is to be. That's one word in Greek. It's the word for yes. Yes. And in case you didn't get that, throw in amen. This is done. He is coming. The world will see him. They will weep at his judgment. And his coming is not just the one event. It's several things that go on throughout the book of Revelation. His coming is going to bring about his wrath that brings about final condemnation for some, salvation for others. And that is certain. The final attribute that we want to look at. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Verse 8. Who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. He's sovereign over every event. Alpha, Omega, the beginning and the ending letters of the Greek alphabet. All things occur under his direction, under his planning, under his execution. What God says to begin all things in Genesis 1, God finishes in Revelation 22. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's sovereign over time. Notice again, he's the one who is and the one who was. He, he transcends time. He's sovereign over time. He's also sovereign over the earth. He's the one who is coming. Coming where? To the earth. He's coming to rule the earth. And he's sovereign over every authority. Every authority. He is, as it says at the end, the almighty. The almighty. Nine times we'll see this in the book of Revelation. That same term will be found 181 times in the Old Testament. It is the term for the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? He is the one who rules over all, every authority over all the earth, whether spiritual authority or earthly authority, he rules over all of them. I don't know how many more ways you could say God is sovereign. He rules over everything, every event, all time, all people, the earth, every authority, he's sovereign. So, 
If God is telling us, here's what's coming, how can you believe that? How could you have confidence? Well, what you need to do is rehearse who God is. By the way, this is the same thing when you're anxious about something, right? What are you anxious about? Oh, this is going to happen. I don't know how it's going to come out. So you're worried about something in the future, aren't you? Who should you trust? Well, God hasn't told me how it's going to work out tomorrow. No, he might not have told you how every detail will work out. What has he told you? Trust me. Trust me. What, what do you have to worry about? What do you have to worry about? The eternal God who rules over all of the earth, every detail of it, sovereign over it, your savior, your king is speaking to you, saying, calm down, live steady, stable lives because of who he is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time when we could look more into the word and study the truths of the scripture. We pray that it will steady our soul and steady our heart regarding the things that concern us, the things that make us anxious at times. Lord, would you do what you alone can do to draw those who need Christ to him, to show them their need of such an almighty God. Would you remind us that whatever happens in the world, whatever our expectations are, they must not alter our absolute confidence. We must not live in a way that is anxious, unstable, or fretful. You have told us what is to come. Help us to trust you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you know this God, this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to celebrate the knowledge of Christ. If you don't know Christ, then what we're doing here at the Lord's table may look a little strange to you. We're taking a piece of bread and a small cup of 